Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to 10% Happier early and ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. From ABC, this is the 10% Happier Podcast. I'm Dan Harris. I always think it's so interesting and truly brave and truly useful when really well-known people speak honestly about their struggles with mental health issues. And we have a case in point this week. Amos Lee, you may have heard of him, very well-known singer, songwriter, has struggled with anxiety for a long, long time and turned to and continues to turn to meditation as one of the things that's helped him. He's had plenty of real difficulties in his life, and you're going to hear a really uh, revelatory and I think as I said before, brave and useful interview coming up on the show. Also, he's the first of our musical guests to actually bring his guitar into the studio, and he's going to play us off the air, as we say in television, although we're not really on the air here. He's going to play us off the pod at the end, so you'll want to listen for that as well. So that's coming up. First, though, your voicemails. Here's number one. Hey, Dan. Uh, My name's Karen, and I've been following you quite a bit. I've been doing meditation uh, to help with my anxiety and panic attacks, so that's good. I just wondered how long it took before you uh, recovered from panic or if you still have it. I practice about three times a day and exercise, and I see a therapist. I don't do drugs, so um, I admire you coming forward. There's a lot of us out here. So, yeah, just do you still have it? Um, Is it gone? Is it not gone? Is it just a little bit? The panic, I mean. So thank you, and thanks for everything. You're a great guy. Thank you. Uh, I really appreciate you saying that. I really admire how aggressively, maybe that's not the right word, but how assiduously, maybe that's the right word, you are pursuing your treatment for this very difficult thing, panic and anxiety, it can whittle your life down to nothing if you're basically everything that makes you anxious or gives you a panic attack you avoid, then you are you may not be left with much. And so the fact that you're going after it and you know meditating and seeing a therapist and exercising, all the things you need to do, according to the experts, is awesome. So you asked about my situation. You know, I – in my experience – I don't have a sense that there's a cure for this stuff. I think you can really get at the root causes and make a bunch of life hacks to make it to make your life much easier. But you're these these to me, they seem like chronic conditions that you can mitigate to a great extent. But I don't consider myself somebody who's, you know, not at risk to have panic attacks anymore. Absolutely not. So. For me, the most useful things have been uh, – and I'm just going off what my doctor told me many years ago after I had my on-air panic attacks, that you know you have to treat yourself like a, a thoroughbred horse. You need to really take care of yourself. So I keep my eye on getting enough sleep, pretty careful about my diet. I'm very aggressive about my exercise, although the part of that's because I'm an on-air narcissist, and uh, meditation. And you know what? Medication. My most prominent <laughs> panic attacks have been on national television. There is a great medication, uh, a class of medications called beta blockers, which are non-narcotic 
and uh, you can take them uh, if you're worried about having a panic attack, and it will it won't change the way you're. Uh, it's it's not gonna it's not like taking an anti-anxiety drug where all of a sudden you're a little dopey. It really just blocks, as I understand it, your the physiological symptoms of a panic attack. So your heart rate can't get that high. So uh, I find that incredible. It's the closest thing to a silver bullet I've ever encountered, and it's used by people who have to perform from surgeons to ballet dancers to public speakers the world over. So it's that's a, another thing that I found to be incredibly useful. So I, I think there are lots of ways to get at this. And, and, and personally, in, in my life, I, I feel like I'm in a much better place than I was after I had those panic attacks because I'm not doing drugs. Removing cocaine from the system is, is pretty useful. Um, but I don't consider myself cured, and I'm not sure there is such a thing. All right. Voicemail number two. Hey, Dan. My name is Bob. I live in the Chicago area. I have been a, a meditation practitioner for several years now, maybe as much as about four or five years now. I practice twice a day, about 20 minutes a day. And my question is, how do you know when you should up your practice from, say, 20 minutes to 30 minutes or an hour once or twice a day? And even taking that a step further, you keep on talking about going on retreat. And I want to know how you know not just how to know when you should be ready for a retreat, but even more importantly, how do you pick a retreat in which to go to and the length of time? Thanks. Keep up the great work. And I hope to keep on hearing from you every week as you normally do pop up on my podcast. Thank you. Bye-bye. Thanks, man. A lot in that question. So let me see if I can remember it all. So in terms of your daily dosage of meditation, I think that's just such an individual thing. One thing I would say, just based on my own experience, is maybe don't get too ambitious in a way that makes it unsustainable. So if you're doing 20 minutes a day and you all of a sudden decide to do three hours a day or two hours a day, my one worry is that you could... Well, first of all, I worry that it you know, might be irresponsible in some way. I mean, I don't know the situation in your life, but I don't want you to start neglecting your kids or your spouse or your job. So that's one thing. But se- second, I, I, assuming none of that's going to happen, I worry that you will maybe set yourself up for failure and then your ego will swoop in and tell you a whole story about how you're a failed meditator and then you're really off the wagon. So I would recommend an incremental approach personally. Another way to to gauge, you know, how much you should be sitting every day is if you have a teacher, you know, if you go to a meditation class once in a while and maybe uh, talk to the teacher afterwards, or if you have an individual relationship with the teacher, that can be a very useful thing to just sort of talk it out with somebody. But so I I guess my bottom line is if you're interested in hiking it up, uh, the daily dosage, I think go for it. But just maybe go for an incremental approach uh, so that you don't, you know, run fall off a cliff here. In terms of a meditation retreat, look, it's a little bit like the thing people tell you about having a kid. It's never a good time. <laughs> I mean, there, it's always inconvenient and it's always going to seem at least uh, and I'm speaking from only from my experience here that it's it, it it's always a pain to find the time to do it. And I always kind of dread doing it. And yet it is the time in my experience when I make the biggest leaps in my practice and I have the most profound experiences. I really come to sort of molecularly understand 
the things we're talking about on this podcast and that you read about in great books about meditation or Buddhism. So I highly recommend it at any stage, frankly. I did my first meditation retreat after a year. Now, I often tell people one of my little canned lines from having spent four and a half, nearly five years uh, speaking publicly about meditation post-publishing my first book is you don't have to go on a meditation retreat in order to be a successful meditator. I think if you're doing just a few minutes a day, that's fine. And I went on my first retreat because I was writing a book and I needed some stuff to write about. So that was, frankly, part of my motivation. Um, I also really did understand that for me, meditation was a useful practice and that a meditation retreat was a great way to – it was obvious to me it was a great way to up my game. And it had been recommended to me by people who I really trusted and admired, including Sam Harris, um, who's been on the show before, the – as a well-known podcaster and author, and also Dr. Mark Epstein, who's also been on the show before and is a well-known author. Um, Both of them had recommended to me, and so I was really taking it seriously as a result of that, too. Uh, The one piece of advice I often give people about, and I was was texting with the guys from uh, the Minimalism podcast um, who have become friends. Uh, They're interested in going on a, um, a meditation retreat, and I was telling them they wanted to go on a three-day retreat. And my advice is actually... Go for a seven to ten. I know that sounds super daunting, but in my experience on these retreats, you're really suffering until day four or five when the, the, the volume of your mental chatter can go way, way down. And um, that's when really interesting things can happen. And again, in, in, in my experience and, um, you know, the, the guys from minimalism were saying, well, we don't we just don't have the time to do that. And that's fine. I think three days is better than no days. But um, so I wouldn't tell you don't do it if you only have two or three days. But take seriously the rather radical notion that seven to 10 days may be the move. Okay. And the final part of what you asked me is how do I know where a good meditation retreat is? I, I do not consider myself a comprehensive expert on all the meditation retreats offered in this country, but I do know two of the spots that I really can unreservedly recommend, and those are Spirit Rock, which is north of San Francisco, and the Insight Meditation Society, which is in Barrie, Massachusetts, B-A-R-R-E, Massachusetts. They both have websites. Google them. Look at the retreat calendar. Find one that works for you and go for it. Those places I honestly believe you cannot go wrong at those places, and they have just a phenomenal lineup of teachers. All right. Good luck to you. Go for it. Let's get to our guest. It's Amos Lee, pretty famous guy, uh, very accomplished musician, and as we've seen from so many of our guests on the show, people who just make it to the highest echelons of our culture, often uh, they're dealing with pretty heavy stuff in their personal life. And Amos quite uh, courageously is willing to come out and talk about it at length here and the role that meditation has played. And as I said, he sings us a song. So here he is, Amos Lee. Well, great to meet you. You too. Congratulations on the new record. Thank you. Very excited about it. Well, we're going to dive into it uh, in a big way. Uh, let's start with uh, with meditation, if you're if you're cool with that. Sure. So you've 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 flirted with it. Uh, how did how and why did that come about? I, I think I actually did more than flirt with meditation. Okay. All right. Yeah. Um, you got on base. I was on base. I was. <laughs> I'm not sure which base I was on or how I got there, but I started in college, and um, my mom was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I was in South Carolina, and that kind of rocked my world. And I wasn't. And I, I was also at the same time having pretty major anxiety issues because I have a I have a generalized anxiety disorder. 
and I've had one since I was a kid. And I never medicated because, as you know, maybe you know some people who have these things. A lot of people with generalized anxiety disorders don't like taking pills. Um, and I happen to be a very physically sensitive person. So, like, if I take something down, I'm, I get down. Um, so I wanted something that would try to help and I wasn't drinking or I, had, I didn't really have music yet. I was just starting to play music, but I was having panic attacks three or four times a day. Wow. So I decided that I was going to try to do this meditation thing and I was introduced to it through a comparative religious literature course I took when I was um, in Massachusetts. I took a semester at UMass Amherst and I had this comparative uh, religious literature class and we read everything from I've heard you talk about um, Buddhism Beyond Beliefs. Yeah, we read Stephen Batchelor. Great yeah, book, yeah, great book. Uh, Pure Heart Enlightened Mind, which is another really great book about Zen Buddhism. Um, that's his guitar. Yeah, that's my that's my <laughs> om. Uh, uh, we read The Legend of Baal Shem, The Cloud of Unknowing. So we got into mystic texts and and books from all traditions with the le- the Legend of Zhuangzi. Uh, but the the professor of the class was an ordained Catholic priest minister and also a Zen priest. So he was this super deep guy who had lost a child and gotten into studying Buddhism. So I went on a retreat with him, and we did a Zazen retreat in western Massachusetts where we did sitting, walking, chanting, sitting, walking, chanting, silent retreat for four days. And that was sort of like me going headlong into it. Wait, this is way beyond flirting. Well, way beyond flirting, yes. Uh, and then, yeah, see, I didn't tell you any of this. So after that, I was pretty devout Buddhist for about two years in college. When everyone else was partying and drinking, I was playing guitar and meditating two hours a day. Wow. And really focusing heavily on, like, doing my mala beads and reading texts. And I got really deep into it. Um, Then came the music. (laughs) And once I became a a musician and started hanging around musicians, I was like, actually, this is what I really want to do. I thought I never really thought about going into a monastic life. I flirted with that in my mind. But I never did it, obviously. Because I felt like I didn't want to be sequestered. I wanted to do good in the world. And I'm not saying that monks don't do good in the world. They do great in the world. But I wanted to be active. I wanted to live in the active world. So what happened from there? When you got into music, did you completely abandon Buddhism and meditation? No. I mean, philosophically, I I still, I mean, I feel like I practice compassion as much as I possibly can. Um, it's funny because... I, I read – I really like Herman Hesse, Hesse however he's, he might have said it. But Author I, of Siddhartha. Yeah. And so I read Siddhartha a bunch of times. And I came to this conclusion that the Buddha wasn't the Buddha until he was the Buddha. And what that means to me is he wasn't really – I guess he was striving to find something. But I don't think – I don't. This is my interpretation that, that he really knew what it was he was going to find. And then it happened. And he was like, oh, it's this. And that's kind of how I was with music. I didn't really know I was going to sit under the tree and find it, but I did. So I sat under the tree and I was like, this is what I've been waiting for. So I didn't abandon Buddhism in my in my thought process, but I wasn't as 
interested in going down the, the, the long path of becoming like a super devout Buddhist who is just every day practicing, practicing, practicing meditation, maybe going into a monastery. But Pure Heart, Enlightened Mind is a really great book. Who wrote that? Uh, I think her name was uh, – I'm going to mess it up. She was an Irish woman. I don't want to say it because I might say someone else's name, Mo- Moira O'Hallahan or Mo- Moira O'Halloran. It's a great book. So basically it's this woman who I think was living in Boston. And she wanted she they she found herself sitting zazen in all these random corners in her house, completely unprompted by anyone in her life. And um, she moved to Japan and became the first Zen priest priestess or priest um, since many many years. And it was her coming to terms with a lot of hardship and um, patriarchy and self doubt. And I just really related to her writing and to her experience and how raw and open she was about it. It's a really beautiful book. But question, question about you. Uh, the, so you got into meditation initially. It sounds like the initial impulse was because of generalized anxiety disorder. Mm-hmm. You did it very seriously for a couple of years and then stopped. Mm-hmm. Did it help with the anxiety? And then when you stopped, did you find the anxiety coming back? Well, anxiety for me is – it's a chronic condition. I'm never not going to have it. And something that I like to talk to my fellow anxiety sufferers about is like, don't think it's going away. Don't try to cure yourself. Just understand that you can manage it. It's manageable. It's going to come back stronger at times. It's going to go away. But it's, and I found that the acceptance of that was a big mind change for me because at first when I was having panic attacks and major anxiety issues, I just didn't know what was happening. Mm. It was sort of the late, or it was like the mid-90s, and it hadn't – people would say panic, but it's not like today where so many people are very aware of what a panic attack feels like. And my particular brand of panic was very strong, and it was even kind of like there might have been a little break in there at times for me because I was really suffering. Like psychotic break. Maybe. Maybe. Uh, there was a little bit of a break in there for me, I think, where I couldn't really tell the difference between things. But – I've always been very in, in, engaged in um, overcoming things. I, and it wasn't like you can even fight it. I, I wasn't trying to fight it, but I did this program, which I'm not, I'm not on here to plug anybody, but I'm just giving you my experience. Oh, I did a cool. program called a, Attacking Anxiety, and it was a 12-step program um, done by this woman named Lucinda Bassett. And it's very 12-steppy. So for the for those of your audience members who might have anxiety disorders and don't want something that's, you know, 12-step. But what I mean by that is, like, there's a power greater than you, you know, all that. I didn't really, I didn't really get into that part of the program, but it just helped me so much to identify what was happening to me, to know I wasn't alone because that's such a big thing for people who suffer from all kinds of stuff. Just know you're not alone. And then it just gave you very practical means to, like, change your thought process, like replace your negative thoughts. Like you talk a lot about witness. Just be a witness. You don't have to be an active demolisher. Just be a witness. So the thought comes up, uh, you should be worried about X, Y, Z right now and forever. And then you can recognize, oh, no, that, that's just a bunch of thoughts. Yeah. Well, at least I can say, I know that this will pass. I know that this will pass. And also, I can handle it. Those were big 
things for me. Those those statements like, I can handle it. It's gonna. I'm gonna be okay. I'm not gonna lose my mind. I'm not like. I mean, maybe someday, who knows what my diagnosis will be, but at, in this very moment, I can handle this. And in, yeah. The attacking anxiety course, did you do that around the same time that you were doing the meditation? Yeah, it was It was sort of maybe a little later that I did the program, but I, the, the meditation was definitely happening. Uh-huh. It was all, I was going to attack out like like the program says i was going to i was going to really go headlong into this thing and and face it did you find that when you took the meditation out of the mix that somehow the anxiety ticked up in some way that you got worse or the the cognitive tools that you learned in uh, attacking anxiety was that enough to kind of corral it 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 helped begin the corralling process again i i still feel like i still have anxiety issues like i you know, there are nights in the past where I've been on stage, and I don't, I don't know how things manifest for anyone else, but my, mine is this very strange kind of out-of-body experience where I'm like, what if my my mouth stops working and I can't get any sound out, or what if I forget every thought that I've ever had? Like really out there stuff, and I'm in the middle of a song, and no one else knows it because I'm just up there singing. And they're like, oh, this feels cool. And meanwhile, internally, I'm like, what if I forget every word that I've ever learned? <laughs> Have you ever broken? Oh, no, man. No, I'm cool. I'm cool. I, I Like, again, witnessing it is a big part of it. You know, it's like witness. Be a witness. Know it will pass. And so another thing that's been really helpful for me is exercise. And I, these days I meditate walking. So I don't sit lotus, but I walk. And I observe and I find that being an observer and fortunately I'm not famous which is good what do you mean you're not famous you've been at the top of the billboard charts it's a weird thing I've I've sort of carved out a place for myself where I can walk around 99% of the world and be unnoticed and also have a, a decent career where I feel very connected to my fans so yeah there's a there's a cool little niche that I found that I'm trying to preserve for myself while promoting my music. So you you feel like you can walk out in public. This is the meditation you were about yeah. to describe. You can walk through the world and turn that into a mindfulness exercise. I do. Yeah, and and I've I use it because it helps me do two things. It helps me stay active and it helps me clear my mind. And when recently when I've gone back into meditation and I've and I I was doing a lot over the winter while I was making this new record that I made called My New Moon. There were days where, like, when you're in a recording process, it's just so much information and it's so much analysis that meditation can be really helpful in those moments just to be like, I am I am going to just disappear for a little while into this thought. And then, you know, meditation does, it doesn't work like that for me, but it slows my mind down gradually and the more i meditate the slower i get so in in this case you're talking about actual seated meditation yeah i got back i got back into some seated meditation but and it's interesting though the the seated meditation that i've done over the past couple years i've i'm wary because like the tom waits quote that i always stumble back on is if i exercise my devils my angels may leave too and when they leave they're so hard to find it's a great tom waits song but i always think about that i'm like i don't want to get too healthy because i don't be able to write anymore so i think that's such an interesting question i i'm not 
creative in the way you are. I mean, I write books, and so there is creativity in there, but I'm not conjuring songs out of thin air or conjuring um, uh, fictional stories, although I am actually kind of working on a fictional thing, um, the way you are. But I, I wonder, I mean, I once heard a great meditation teacher, my meditation teacher, Joseph Goldstein, asked about I think it was Beethoven or Mozart. I can't remember. But basically saying, hey, this guy, this great composer was miserable. Would he have made such great stuff if he wasn't? And Joseph's answer was, maybe he would have made better stuff. Mm-hmm. And I, I find that intriguing because this is deeply held belief in creative communities that you need to have at least some misery. And I guess I, I, would, I would add something else to that, which is that I've been, I'm not a meditation master. I've only been doing it for coming up on a decade. I don't think eliminating all the devils is on the table. <laughs> right. So, yeah, it depends on how many you have. So I, I just feel like what, what <laughs> there's a great quote from this uh, Hindu teacher. Uh, actually, he's a Jewish guy from Boston, but he, he, he changed his name to Ram Das. Oh, very yeah. famous in the meditation community. He says, meditation does not annihilate your neuroses. It makes you a connoisseur of your neuroses. Uh-huh, so right. I would argue that that's kind of increased visibility into the machine and the machinations of the mind would put you in closer touch with your vulnerabilities, sensitivities, and and give you maybe a better uh, a leg up, an advantage in the writing process. Of course, again, I, I caveat that with the, the fact that I'm not writing songs, so what do I know? Well, it worked for Stevie Wonder because, you know, he was very into transcendental meditation. In fact, he sings on it in... Um is it the songs of the key of Li- songs in the key of life record? Transcendental meditation, mm, transcendental meditation, but transcendental meditation speaks of preservation. Transcendental meditation gives peace of mind. Yeah, he gets into it, so you can listen to Stevie. He'll tell you. But Stevie's a genius anyway, so it, I, I mean, maybe it's just the kind of thing that, like, if it if it if he goes into in, into his meditation state and he gets clearer, he feels better. That's wonderful. Um, I guess for me, I'm a little bit more anxious about losing it. So <laughs> I hear you. <laughs> yeah. One of the things you described yourself in college as, as sort of really being focused on exercise and and not drinking or taking pills because you thought that would make the anxiety worse. But you're in the music business. I would imagine there's no shortage of powders and pills right. and, and potions. Right. Uh, uh, how do you, what's your attitude toward all that now? I don't judge. Like I've, I you also, don't, do you do? Uh, no. I, well, I definitely like a martini, and uh, I, like, I like wine, so I definitely indulge there. Um, I just think that today, and I know people very close to me and I've lost people close to me who have done the potions and the powders and the pills and it's a scary time out there right now because you don't know what you're taking some of the time and with the opioid edemic and fentanyl being cut and everything uh, you know again I don't judge people who use I don't judge addicts I think a lot of people are self-medicating I know people in my life who grew up undiagnosed and were self-medicating until they wound up in prison, and then and then they got their their diagnosis, and then the whole and then they're like, I just wasted 15 years of my life because I just didn't know. Um, 
but yeah, there's lot. I mean, there's lots of that in in a lot of jobs though these days. I think music is actually maybe more professional and focused than a lot of other stuff these days. I mean, you know, if you're talking about 1986 and the abundance times where you would roll into wherever, whatever studio, and there's a plate of cocaine there waiting <laughs> for you, but like. I don't know if you've heard, but the music industry doesn't really sell any records anymore. <laughs> so that that plate of cocaine is now like, um, you know, a Metro card. It's like, well, you know, get 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 home safely, work hard, post on your Instagram, and you know, keep producing music. Um, but it's interesting, man, because I know young musicians these days. And they're so focused, so many of them. I know that we heard the tragic stories, you know, we've heard over the past couple of weeks. So a lot of, a, a few young musicians have lost their lives. Yeah, Mac Miller. Yeah, and it's, every time I hear it, I'm just like, it devastates me because I hate, I, my thing is I don't, I don't, well, it's not my thing, it's all of our thing. I don't, I don't like when people feel alone in their suffering. And um, if, so a lot of times, I, I just lost a friend two weeks ago um, and we don't know what what happened, but I, it makes me want to cry for him that he maybe he felt so alone that he wanted to just go away by himself. Now again, it's his right to do what he chooses with his life, but it breaks my heart. And I I want to reach out to people through music, and that that's sort of the mission of this latest record is to reach out to people who are maybe grieving or feeling some way and let them know that they're not alone through the music and also through the live experience. Stay tuned. More of our conversation is on the way after this. This show is brought to you by BetterHelp. I got to tell you, I feel so much better when I talk about my anxiety instead of keeping it bottled up. There's an expression that I first heard from the great researcher and also Zen practitioner Robert Waldinger, never worry alone. Our temptation many times is to keep it bottled up, but the data really show that the people who do the best in life, who live the longest and are the happiest, have strong relationships with people with whom they can talk about whatever's going on in their lives. And for me, therapy is part of that. If you're thinking of starting therapy, you might give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash happier today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash happier. As they say at Amica, empathy is our best policy. Whether you need auto, home or life insurance, they're ready to help you protect the things that matter most to you. They're a mutual company, customer-owned, in service to you. Amica representatives are here when you need them, and you can take comfort knowing a real person will be there on the phone to take care of you because the greatest measure of their success is your satisfaction. Just woke up. Your phone is lighting up with headlines and push notifications and a text from your mom saying, how do I click this? Okay, maybe that's just me. But if you want to get up to speed, check out the new podcast from ABC News. Start here. Literally, the ground was shaking. I'm Brad Milkey, and every morning, we're going to take you to the stories that matter with fast, fresh insight. Hello, Robert Mueller. Michael Cohen calling. All in 20 minutes. Start here. Listen for free on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast app. So I know there's a, a bit of a story behind this new record. 
Can, can you tell me the story? I, 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 if I understand correctly, was it a chance meeting backstage? Yeah, there was. Uh, there were. There have been a couple real important influences on this record. The first happened in New York State, actually, um, and it was two parents that came back after a show of mine, and they told me that they had lost their son to cancer, and that the music. My, the music that I was making was a really big part of their healing process. And even in the last days of his life, they would all share the songs together. And up until that point, I never really even considered that reality. I think I was just oblivious to it. Like I was just making my music and playing my shows and probably in my own head with my own negative self-talk about whatever it was that I was going through at the time. And that was a real moment of clarity for me where I recognized that I could really be of service to people and I changed my entire opinion of how to approach my job from that moment on and I, for, since then it's and it's helped me actually immensely as a performer too because when I have those demons of doubt crawl onto my shoulders I, I just focus back on those two or I think about someone in the audience. It only has to be one person who I can go, they're here because they really want to be here and this has been a healing like experience for them and I don't know how hard it was for them to get here. Maybe they had to drive three hours and get a babysitter and parking. I better just do your best. Be of service. Like take take I take the audience journey very seriously and the way I approach every show. So... That's really interesting. I, I, we've had a lot of entertainers and, and, and specifically musicians in that chair. Nobody, I, I've never really heard anybody, and I love it, describing music as a service. Yeah. I, I mean, it's a heady term. No, but I like it. Yeah. I, 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 there's no, if you're hearing judgment in my voice, it's positive judgment. No, I hear judgment in my own voice. Which is generally where most of the judgment that <laughs> yes, I have comes. True. <laughs> most of us, especially those of us with anxiety, for sure. Yeah. Um, but when I say the word, when, when I say the word service, it comes from a lot of places. Like, first of all, it's an interesting word because it means a lot of different things. It's like it is a thing. It's a service. You can go to a Catholic or a Jewish service, yeah. a funeral mm -hmm. service. Mm -hmm. A communion. You, a communion. You can go to – you can have service. You can be of service. It's a, it's a very widespread word. So I think of it in that I want to be present with you and, and value your experience as much as mine, if not more. And I think that's always been where I've come from as a, a service. Like when I worked in the restaurant industry, I waited tables. You're there to be a server, Right. It's fine. It's a, a fine word to use. And I really loved the job. I worked at the Olive Garden. I was a server at the Olive Garden. Nice. And that's nice. hard. Yeah. You, you got to run back and forth and get the fill the bread right. sticks basket. Right. Yeah. I, I got my steps in those days. That was part of my <laughs> isn't exercise that all, Isn't that regimen. all you can eat, breadsticks? Isn't that the deal? Uh, it's soup, salad, and sticks. All right. Dan, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> soup, salad, and sticks. And also unlimited beverages. Okay. So that's a so, lot of movement. You know, folks come in hungry, and uh, it's an interesting business model, too, because you're sort of feeding them before they eat. Um, and what I mean is the entree is sort of secondary. It's a weird thing. It's a weird model, but it worked for them, and it's, it worked for me because 
it was the the a service job where I was like, I don't feel like getting the third bowl of salad for these people, but I don't know if this is the only night they're going to have out for the next three months, and this is a special time for them, and I want to make sure that at least I'm paying attention. So the roots were sort of spread then, and I was able to take those lessons that I learned at the Olive Garden, again, not plugging anything here. <laughs> and Didn't take it that way. Yeah, and move them into a new arena, which is an artistic, emotional place, which is much more meaningful for me than salad. It would be... <laughs> Yes. Uh, what I was going to say before before that was um, what I what I hear a lot of in what you, in the foregoing is is uh, a natural capacity on your end for empathy, at which I say that with some envy on my end because I don't know how how good I am at that because I could see myself as if I project myself into the Olive Garden job mm. again with no, no disrespect for Olive Garden but just just in terms of the running back and forth to serve breadsticks or salad or whatever. I think I might be lost in a sort of black hole of self-absorption and self-pity, whereas you got some of that, for sure. Yeah. But then also they, well, maybe this is their only night. Whereas I don't know that that addendum, postscript, whatever, suffix on the on the, on the the thought uh, loop would have come in for me. So I just, mm-hmm. I just, I'm just pointing that out, which is cool, I think. Yeah, I, I mean, I... Th- for me as a writer, also, empathy is uh, hugely important. Uh, I get bored of my own stories a lot. And something that I have always really enjoyed and wanted to do more of was living in someone else's skin. And I've I've brought up Quantum Leap a bunch of times. I don't know if you remember that show from the 80s with Scott Bakula. Yeah. Does he play a, a superhero? He's like, mm, he's sort of a superhero. He just, he can, he, the premise of the show is this dude has somehow found a portal and I don't know all the details, but he found a portal so he can experience things in different points of history as different individuals. Oh, I vaguely remember it. I right. think I was confusing it with another show with like a regular guy who becomes a superhero. That's in the 80s. probably called My Secret Identity, which was uh, Jerry O'Connell. Look, man, I'm older than you. No, you're not. <laughs> I'm 47. How old are you? Oh no, I'm 41. But you look 33. No, no, it no, must 47. be all that meditation. I, I sleep in formaldehyde. <laughs> <laughs> I smelled something. <laughs> uh, no, it's not. It's not the the Jerry O'Connell show either. There was a show. The guy with curly blonde hair, and I have this memory in the opening sequence of him being on top of a building with a cape on and kind of jumping off. But he was a regular guy. Oh, dude, I know what you're talking about. It's um, I I wore that costume as a kid for Halloween. Oh God, what was it called? Oh, this is horrible. See, this is why I put my phone away because I would want to Google this right now. Whatever it is. We know what it is. But yes. he, didn't he have a thing, a little yes. lightning bolt yes. on his chest? Yes, yes, Well, now your listeners will be experiencing this yelling at their podcasts on the trains going, it's this show, dummy. Uh, yes. Uh, I'm not sure where we went to with that, but now I'm just thinking about that show. Well, you were talking about Quantum Leap. Yeah. So, well, as a writer, and and I think that that was the whole point, that was the point of that show to me was how to cultivate more empathy in your life. And I, you know, I come from a naturally empathetic mother who is, who raised me on empathy. That was sort of what I was fed every day. Don't judge you know, like we've we've had a lot of hardship in our family. So when you see it firsthand and you see how people deal with hardship with compassion and love, 
I think that breeds empathy rather than putting a, a fence or a wall up and saying that's not my problem. How is she? Is she still around? She is around, man. Yeah, she had she had breast cancer twice. She fought it. Um, it did a doozy to her. I mean, you know, all the survivors out there, I'm giving you my love right now because it is tough. And uh, but it, it it opened up a door into understanding how hard that journey is for people. And now I work with two organizations, one of which is called Musicians on Call. And they, what we do is we go bedside for people who aren't well enough to leave and we play for them. And the other organization is Melodic Caring Project. And they stream shows, live concerts to mostly children who are quarantined. So they're so sick they can't have visitors. And I did a show with them where I met this little girl named Maya Gladhart who is getting back to the record. She inspired a song on the record called Little Light because she was really sick. And her family welcomed me into their home as a stranger coming into their suffering, which people can be very protective of. And they offered me a look in and a, and a light in. And I just started sending her songs and playing her FaceTime tunes. And we became super tight buddies. And, you know, getting back to the empathy place, having those experiences with my mom and also going through a lot as a kid and being raised on these this ideology of empathy and compassion just it hurts sometimes because you're with her and she's suffering so much and you just want to make her better but um her grace and her strength inspired me so much that it also helps perspective so i'd be on stage some nights Maybe when my service mechanism isn't working in my brain and I think about her and I think about, wow, she, I mean, she, she's probably nauseous as hell. She has no hair. She hasn't been to school in six months. She doesn't know what her diagnosis is going to be. I can get up here and do this tonight. And um, I, I'm amazed at the kid, the, some of these kids that I meet, how strong they are and how wise they are. And this little girl is so wise. So, How's she doing now? She is in remission. Nice. Six months, yeah. So I'm wearing this little beaded bracelet she made me and this weird stinky rope that she sent. <laughs> and uh, it wasn't stinky before I put it on, but wearing it for the last year straight, you know, it's got its moments. But I'm going to wear this until she's a year in remission. But she seems good. All of her scans keep coming back clean. So, yeah, she's doing great. So is this kind of uh, forthright look at suffering the theme of the new record it's part of it it's a def i mean it's a big part of it it's it's not only theirs it's my own because i lost my grandmother uh two years ago and i was there with her when she was so the story is that she was in the hospital we didn't know that how sick she was so she was having i don't know if this is part of but you told me not to edit myself so i don't won't edit so yourself, yeah. yeah so she she was having this like bad stomach issues, like what we thought was reflux, and she was a diabetic. And something that I learned through this process is if you know someone who is a diabetic, and a female especially, and they're experiencing a lot of stomach stuff, it could be their heart. And it was her heart. So her, her pain was so bad she had to sleep upright at night. We had no idea. We just didn't know that it was her heart. We thought because we all have our... We all have reflux, all of us in my family. So we thought, oh, it's her reflux. She was 
eating Tums and everything so much. I remember talking to her. I was like, Graham, I got, you know, I got my reflux too. I I tried this other medicine. She's like, oh, I'll try that because my grandmother was the sweetest human being on the pl- on the planet Earth. They had eight kids by the time she was 31. She wow. raised them all with the utmost love and care. Um, and so she was admitted to the hospital, and the doctor came in and said she's 96% blocked across the board. Like, if she can make it to the morning, we're going to do a surgery on her. We think we, think we can get some openings in there for her. And so initially we were completely devastated, and then when we got this news – just make it to morning, we were all like super pumped. We were like, yes, she's going to make it to the morning. And so she got stable. She got into her bed. We were there with her. And at, so the family was now trickling out because it was getting to be like 9 or 10. It was getting late, past visitor hours. So they would only allow a few of us to stay. And my mom is not a person who leaves. So, and she's the oldest girl. And her mom was her person. So we stayed, and around 11.30, she got AFib, and it got very bad. Like, her vitals were all over the place, and it was just really me, my mom, and my aunt. But my mom and my aunt were just, it was such a excruciating experience mm-hmm. to watch her suffer so much, because mm-hmm. she was basically having a massive heart attack. She was having heart failure. Was she conscious for this? She was conscious for it, but she was in and out because her vital, like her blood pressure was like very low. Her heart rate was racing and then falling. And like the whole time I'm staring at her, you know, her vitals and I'm like, just make it to morning. Please just make it to morning. And then about four, I realized like I was just sitting in there with her and I was like, she's, I've, I've been around people actively dying before. She's not making it. I hear the like. There's a certain kind of breathing that starts to happen yeah. where I'm like, she's not making it. And uh, I called my mom in, and she, you know, she came in, and she was like, lost it. And it was a hard moment. So it's not just other people's stuff. It's it's our stuff on this record too. And so I wrote a song for her called. I wrote a couple songs for her. One's called "Hang On, Hang On," and um, it's about the experience of. Um, of just, I don't know, you know, being there with her and, and saying, please stay. But she wasn't, she she couldn't, but I wanted her to. So it's not just, this record is a partially about being empathetic and some friends of mine who have passed away. It's also about our own suffering and m- my mom and mine and my whole families. And I think I think some of the songs for, on this record are hard for her to hear and listen to because they're, it's raw. Like, it, that's what was happening. And uh, Hang On, Hang On is, for me, probably the most emotional experience on the record. Um, there's another song on the record called All You Got Is a Song, which came out a lot funkier and funner than I thought it would. And I was kind of open to it because I don't want it to be, you know, complete emotional devastation here i want some fun because it's music um but the the basis of that song was when she was in these moments where i knew first of all this my grandma was like the dalai lama to me she was like that's the buddha she got it she just understood everything and um i was with her in the moments where she would just look up at me like weak-eyed and to the side and 
try to smile, but she wasn't even strong enough to smile. But she was trying. And uh, she couldn't talk anymore because they had intubated her because they were trying to just keep her lungs working. So all I did was grab her hand and sing to her. And I sang her my grandfather's favorite song, which if you knew him, he was a wild man. His favorite song was Born to Lose, which is where I get it from. And uh, my grandmom's favorite stuff was like What a Wonderful World and Somewhere Over the Rainbow. So I was just I just sang to her because there were no words for me. There were no words for me to say to her, you're going to be okay. I mean, I'm not going to say that to her. I'm here with you. She knows that. So I just sang her some songs and, and did what I could with her. And so music has played a huge part, not only in my own suffering, but my friends. And I'm always the guy people call on when there's a funeral. So I'm, a, I'm like a funeral singer guy. So a lot of people who pass, I go in and do some songs for them. And um, I'm just very grateful to have music to be that bridge for me, not only into other people's healing and pain, but also just into their hearts in the shows and make them feel better you know, in those moments where they're not grieving. Music as a service. Yeah. You've got your guitar with you. You want to play something? I, w- I would love to. I want to I make sure I don't overwhelm your system here. You said before you, you, you're you more comfortable playing music than talking, although you did a damn good job on the talking, I have to say. Thank you. Um, let's see if this, this thing is in tune. I think it is. So I'll play Hang On, Hang On for you. Perfect. We never left you We never left you that day We never left you Hurt to see you in so much pain Couldn't hold you But you didn't want to be here Anyway So hang on, hang on Hang on, hang on Hang on, hang on Cause you already come so far alone We never failed you Even though we might have felt that way We never left you Hard to see you in so much pain And I would have stayed there forever But it didn't work out that way So hang on, hang on Hang on, hang on Hang on, hang on 
morning comes, you won't be here alone. Say a lover's prayer, a lover's prayer is all we've known. Say a lover's prayer while we stand in there in the shadow stone. Say a lover's prayer, a lover's prayer is all we've known. Say a lover's prayer, yes. Hang on, hang on. Beautiful. Thanks. Thank you. Really appreciate it. I mean, I think forthrightly, I use that word twice now, but confronting mortality, just getting people to think about that because it's so important. We talk about it a lot on this podcast. I think that in and of itself is a big service. Yeah. I'm, I remember reading The Art of Happiness and I, something to the the tune of, uh, I, I think the, the Dalai Lama said something about imagine yourself in a casket every day when you wake up. Yeah, and and you know that. Hey, how about a morbid thought for for the for the start of the day? But you do you do appreciate stuff. Like I don't know about afterlife. I don't really think about it very much. But I do definitely think about how we affect each other in this one. And I wish more people could do that. People of faith, especially. It's like, can you can you not focus on that? Let's focus on this one. This is important. Let's not sell a thing we don't know about. Let's sell what we know about. We have abundance. We can share it. We can make each other's lives better. Um, but I don't know. I understand why some people like an escape. I definitely understand that. You know, I think about people who were born into slavery and were like, the next life is for me. Like, Jesus is going to take me there. And I understand that. I, and I don't short that. And I hope that it happened. But in modern times with, with us in our culture where, where people are preaching about abundance and then the hereafter, I want the abundance to be saved for, for the here and now. Yeah, I mean, I, I for, uh, for sure, for me, setting aside any metaphysical questions about the here and now versus the hereafter, I definitely think, think being in touch with your mortality mm. in, is not morbid. Mm. In the in the pejorative, it's right. enlivening. It's what yeah. makes you not take stuff for granted. Definitely, yeah. Before before we go, give us the name of the record again, and also like where can we find you on social media? Everything. Sure. Well, uh, the name of the record is My New Moon. Um, it was a song written. the The title track is a song called Whiskey on Ice, which uh, was written for a friend of mine who passed. It's written for his mom and his mom's confronting her her grief. 
And so my new moon, the title of the record, is sort of based around this cycle of renewal and also the ending. Do we know which is which? Do we know how to deal with utter darkness and is utter darkness a renewal for ourselves? And maybe that is the case. So it's called My New Moon, social media. Uh, I get, I, I've never done this before. At Amos Lee, I think. I don't really know. Do I you think post? I, I'm starting to post. I'm, re, I'm very slowly dipping my toes into the social media world. Um, Instagram is A-M-0-S-L-E-E. Um, Facebook, I think, is just Amos Lee something fan page or whatever. But, yeah, reach out. I, I appreciate you having me on here. I think it's really great that you have a, 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 a voice and that you're sharing it with people to try to make their lives 10% happier. I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thanks for coming on. And I know you've got your kickoff to your tour coming up. So good luck with that. Thanks. Okay, that does it for another edition of the 10% Happier Podcast. If you liked it, please take a minute to subscribe, rate us. Also, if you want to suggest topics you think we should cover or guests that we should bring in, hit me up on Twitter at Dan B. Harris. Importantly, I want to thank uh, the people who produce this podcast, Lauren Efron, Josh Cohan, and the rest of the folks here at ABC who helped make this thing possible. We have tons of other podcasts. You can check them out at abcnewspodcasts.com. I'll talk to you next Wednesday. If you like 10% Happier, and I hope you do, uh, you can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at wondery.com slash survey. For more than two centuries, the White House has been the stage for some of the most dramatic scenes in American history. Inspired by the hit podcast American History Tellers, Wondery and William Morrow present the new book, The Hidden History of the White House. Each chapter will bring you inside the fierce power struggles, the world-altering decisions, and shocking scandals that have shaped our nation. You'll be there when the very foundations of the White House are laid in 1792, and you'll watch as the British burn it down in 1814. Then you'll hear the intimate conversations between FDR and Winston Churchill as they make plans to defeat Nazi forces in 1941. And you'll be in the Situation Room when President Barack Obama approves the raid to bring down the most infamous terrorist in American history. Pre-order The Hidden History of the White House now in hardcover or digital editions wherever you get your books. I'm Shimon Yai, and I have a new podcast called The Competition. Every year, 50 high school senior girls compete in a massive scholarship competition. I wouldn't say I have an ego problem, but I'm extremely competitive. All of the competitors are used to being the best and the brightest, and they're all vying for a huge cash prize. This will probably be the most intense that you've ever gone through in your life. I remember that feeling because I was one of them. I lost. But now, I'm coming back as a judge and also a kind of teen girl anthropologist. Because if you want to understand what it's like to be a young woman in America today, the competition's not a bad place to start. Hopefully, no one will die on station night. From Pineapple Street Studios and Wondery, this is The Competition. Follow The Competition on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Competition early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus.